0: Okay, a couple of announcements to remind everyone. We're having our annual Christmas dinner following the church service Sunday morning, and that will be, uh, and there's a sign-up sheet in the back for desserts, side dishes. We're going to provide ham, I think, I believe, and so uh, sign up, and uh, everyone's welcome. Also, this coming Saturday morning, we're having our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30, and then just a reminder, on Thursday night, december the twenty fifth there will be no bible class on Christmas day, but the next week on thursday night january the first there is bible class okay so the only cancellation of bible class due to the holiday season will be on christmas day itself new year 's there will be bible class and uh, and following the other announcement is uh, the other day I was uh, shopping in Fiesta grocery store here in Houston, which is, uh, has a, which really orients to the Hispanic market, and was walking between a couple of aisles, and they had one of those racks with the devotional Christian books on it, and I've often thought, you know, I wish my publishers would put our spiritual warfare book up there, that might sell somewhere, and I looked, and there was the Spanish version. So I, uh, this is published by Kriegel. Kriegel took the English out of print uh, a couple of years ago. We're publishing it. Dean Bible Ministries is having it published uh, on, on our own now, so it is still available, but this is available through Kriegel, and you can uh, order some, but we have that. Uh, we ordered uh, 10 or 15 to have them in-house and in stock, we have one less now because Gene already co-opted one. But that's uh, that's available in Spanish. It's also available from Harvest House. I don't remember. I think it's called something. in, in Portuguese. It's Triumph in the Battle, something like that. So it's also available in, in Portuguese, and they do still um, make that available in Brazil and and in S- South America. So it is out there in different languages, as well as in uh, as well as in Russian. I think I got. I need to check with Jim. Maybe we need to uh, print some more. But uh, that's what's going on. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to focus on the word so that God the Holy Spirit can empower you in your spiritual life and spiritual growth and understanding of the word. Uh, Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we're also very grateful for your grace in our lives that you have given us everything we need for life in godliness. You have given us a salvation that is complete, that is not dependent in any way upon our own efforts, but is uh, dependent solely upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only issue is what do we think about Jesus, believing in him for eternal life. Now, Father, as we study your word and continue our study in terms of your plan for our lives and your plan for history, we pray that you might continue to enlighten us as we come towards the end of this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bibles, you can open them to Ezekiel uh, chapter 43, but we're really not going to look specifically at one text this evening. However, just as a word of, uh, of sort of warning... Encouragement. what we're covering tonight fits and builds upon what we studied, of course, last Tuesday night, dealing with the spirit, spiritual life in the millennium and getting into the millennial temple. But it also fits and builds on what we studied on sacrifice on Thursday night. So since that sacrifice lesson on Thursday night is a sort of a stand-alone Message for those who are listening. When this is just an independent, when this is out as part of this series, they can go listen to that as well to get a, uh, a more insight into this topic related to uh, related to sacrifice. I'm calling this lesson Millennial Temple from Ichabod to Chavod, and the word Chavod in Hebrew is the word for glory. And when the uh, uh, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. It was said to be Ichavod, the I prefix in Hebrew means no glory. And so when the glory of the Lord departed from the temple in 586 B.C., it has yet to return and does not return until we're in the millennium with the millennial temple. So we will at that point go from Ichavod, no glory of God on the earth, to Chavod. This is an artist's depiction of the size of the of the uh, temple during the uh, millennial kingdom. The temple plus the New Jerusalem will encompass about a 2,500 square mile area. So that is an enormous area. It's a and. Um, uh, the temple precinct itself measures about 50 miles square, which is much larger than the old city of Jerusalem. And then, at the center of that is the temple court itself, which measures a, a mile uh, a mile square. Now, when we come to a study of the scripture, this is a this is a controversial area related to how to understand. Uh, this section of Ezekiel. From Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, we have nine chapters that describe a future temple and the operations of that future temple. It talks about the necessity of the future temple and and the reality of that future temple. It also talks about the priesthood that will serve in that future temple. So there's actually a restoration of an active Levitical priesthood and then the restoration of animal sacrifices. And that's really the most important, most controversial area, uh, as we will see. But the Scriptures make it clear that there's going to be a future temple. I talked about this in last week, that there are four temples. The first temple was Solomon's Temple, which was destroyed in 586 B.C. The second temple was much more modest and was built by Zerubbabel, when you had uh, the early return under Zerubbabel uh, uh, from Babylon in 538, they built the temple, dedicated the temple in 516. That was the temple that was uh, modified and rebuilt to a much grander level by Herod the Great. In fact, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world because of what he had done. Now, one of the facts that I uncovered, we often hear... Uh, the fact that we read in the scriptures that they had not finished the temple in John chapter one it indicates that it 's not completed yet and uh, and john chapter two but the the temple itself, the inner sanctum the the main uh, sanctuary, was completed by about five sixteen five seven i mean not five but by sixteen or seventeen b c that part had been completed. Some of the additional buildings, the courtyard, uh, additional aspects, was not uh, completed until somewhere around 42-43 uh, A.D. But the, the, the centerpiece was uh, was completed much earlier, long before the birth of Christ. Now, the other thing about it is it's called the third uh, or the second temple. Uh, throughout that whole period from 516 all the way till its destruction in AD 70 because the sacrifices never stopped. So there was a continual daily sacrifice through that period. So the uh, Herod's temple is simply a renovation and expansion of the temple of Zerubbabel. And then there will be a third temple, which is the tribulation temple, which will be an apostate temple that's described in passages like daniel nine twenty six to twenty seven and also in 2 thessalonians two four and then there will be a fourth temple, which is the greatest temple that 's the one that is built uh and and <coughs> by the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the millennial ki- kingdom, so that's the one that we're talking about. As passages like Isaiah 11:9 talk about this future temple. In Isaiah 11:9, the Lord says, "They shall not hurt nor, nor destroy in all my holy mountain," and that is a reference to the location of the temple. In, in the tribulation period, there are going to be an enormous number of, of uh, geological upheavals. There are going to be these massive earthquakes. Uh, that take place not only in the Middle East, but all, all around the world. There's going to be earthquakes in Jerusalem. And as a result of this, the topography is going to be radically changed from what we see today. There'll be a massive uplift that takes place at the end of the tribulation period, and this will raise a an area plateau, which will be the location for the uh, millennial uh, temple. We looked at passages like Isaiah two that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house. And so this emphasizes, again, this is the temple. The Lord's house references the temple. In verse 3, we read that many people will say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Passages like uh, Isaiah 32.15, Isaiah 44. Uh, three, also talk about this uh, expansion, I mean, the, the, the spiritual life in the church age, that it's going to be based upon God the Holy Spirit, and uh, as well as Ezekiel 39, 29, and Joel 2, 28 and 29. All these passages reinforce the fact that it's going to be a distinctive period, a distinctive spiritual life. Although it's energized and empowered by God the Holy Spirit, it's to a greater degree and a different manifestation than what we see today. So we can't draw analogies. And I think in the past there have been a number of, of, I know, dispensational theologians who have drawn too tight a connection, and I think it's, it's going to be very, very different. Um, but the real controversial area comes when we talk about the situation with the sacrifices and the restoration of animal sacrifices and the reason is is when we look at Hebrews 4 through 7 it seems like there is a very strong statement there that the sacrificial system has ended because Christ has finally paid for sin and he has but what we have to come to understand as we discuss this is the issue of this terminology that's used in the Old Testament to describe the function of the sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom and that uh, works revolves around the main word which is atonement but let me just uh, give you a little glimpse of some of the statements that are made uh, against dispensationalism and in opposition to the idea that there are going to be literal animal sacrifices in the kingdom the first uh, first quote is from floyd hamilton who's written uh, several books against Uh, dispensationalism, and he said that the restoration of the whole sacrificial system seems to dishonor the sacrifice of Christ. According to a literal interpretation of Ezekiel 40 to 48, the whole ceremonial law is to be again set up in Israel. Notice how even amillennialists recognize that if you're going to hold to a literal interpretation of scripture that that means there will be a restoration of the sacrificial system in the future millennial kingdom because they've developed a theological conclusion based on their study of Hebrews 4 through 7 as well as their theological amillennial system and their a partial allegorical system of interpretation. When they come to a passage that doesn't fit their system, they just, oh, we're not going to interpret that literally, we're going to interpret it figuratively. And so that's what happens. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who used to teach at Westminster Seminary, uh, stated that to restore all these today would be apostasy. Another well-known uh-millennial writer was Oswald Alice who was a professor at Westminster Seminary back in the 30s and 40s, and he wrote, It's true that the Old Testament predictions of the restoration of the temple and of the Mosaic ceremonial law have occasioned them no little embarrassment. Literally interpreted, this means the restoration of the Aaronic priesthood and of the Mosaic ritual of sacrifices. The author to the Hebrews warns his readers most earnestly against returning to this system Which has been done away? Well, it has and it hasn't, and so we have to look at what the Scripture teaches and what the Scripture says about these particular things. Several years ago now, uh, Tommy Ice was being interviewed uh, by Hank Hanegraaff on the radio show The Bible Answer Man, and right in the middle of the interview, Hanegraaff, for some reason, asked Tommy if he believed in. And that there would be a restoration of sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, and when Tommy said yes, Hanegraaff called him an apostate over the air, so and a heretic. So this is a real division between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists. But it comes back to how do you interpret Scripture. So it's it's very important to work our way through this systematically. So as I pointed out earlier, there's this emphasis on a restored future temple. Well, what is a temple? A temple is a place where the divine dwells upon the earth. And in the Old Testament, you had an interesting pattern that takes place. God begins to dwell upon the earth in the Garden of Eden. The garden of Eden was planted, e- the garden is actually planted east of Eden. Eden is viewed as the dwelling place of God upon the earth. Now, I believe that after the sin, when man is kicked out of the garden and this army of, of cherubs is, is placed around the garden, that God's presence is still there. There's no system of adjudication or law established to govern the affairs of man between the fall and the flood. And I believe that God still adjudicated the affairs of man. You have a statement in Genesis 6 translated wrongly in the King James Version that my spirit will not strive with man anymore. And it should read my spirit or should be translated my spirit will not abide with man. The word that's used there in the Hebrew is what's called the hapax legomena, which is a fancy Latin term for a word that's only used one time anywhere. But it has parallel cognates in other languages which mean to dwell or abide. It doesn't have the idea in any other language of strive. That was just a guess on the part of the uh, translators of the King James Version. So th- that indicates that there is a presence of God still upon the earth. Enoch did what? Enoch who was the uh, grandfather, great-grandfather of Noah, walked on the earth with God. God walked with him, and then one day Enoch was not, for God took him. So you clearly have this indication that God's presence is still on the earth. It left at the flood. When does it come back? At At the tabernacle on Mount Sinai. When God's presence comes, when they finish after a year after he gave the law and they completed the uh, building and the construction of the tabernacle, then the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God, came upon the earth and took up residence in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then in the first temple. And then Ezekiel describes the departure of that, uh, that presence in, uh, in in Ezekiel that the the and it was gradual. The she, he sees the shekinah leaving the holy of holies and going to the uh, outer gate, and then going across. Uh, the Kidron Valley to the uh, Mount of Olives and then going up to the top of the Mount of Olives and ascending, which is roughly the same thing that happened with Jesus when he left. He follows that same pattern. So then you have the uh, the, the, the presence of God leaving in 586 or prior to 586, uh, leaving uh, Jerusalem open to judgment. And then you have the dwelling presence of God, which occurs that very first Christmas when the second person of the Trinity is born upon the earth. And so then you have the dwelling presence of God in the incarnation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ during his time upon the earth. And then when he ascended, he sent what? Another comforter of the same kind who indwells us and makes our body a temple for the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that is going to end when the rapture occurs and the church the body of Christ and all the believers whose bodies are the temple of the holy spirit are taken out of the earth and then there's no dwelling presence of god upon the earth during the tribulation period until the lord jesus christ returns to the second coming and then he's back dwelling upon the earth and establishes this this fourth temple so that looks forward to this it all fits together in a in a a pattern that God wants to dwell with his creatures and have fellowship with his creatures. So we see indications of this. the prophecy for this house of the Lord in a number of different passages. For example, Joel 3.18 looks uh, forward and says, It will come to pass in that day, speaking about the millennial kingdom, that the mountains shall drip, drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. That's not exactly the scenario that you see uh, in Israel today, uh, even during the rainy season. The, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, that's the temple. Now, it's interesting that there has there is a, a spring deep below the surface of Mount Moriah. Which is where the temple is, the uh, Dome of the Rock is located, where the temple was located, and that at one time there was actually a spring that could be accessed from the top of of um, Mount Moriah. Hosea 60:13, uh, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Again, emphasizing this future dwelling place of God upon the earth. Isaiah 56, 6, and 7. Just looking at the second verse on the screen, Isaiah 56, 7, God says, "...even them I will bring to my holy mountain." So this is a reference to the location of the temple in the millennial kingdom. Uh, "...I will bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices." Now notice, here's where we start getting indications that when we get into the uh, millennial kingdom, there will be sacrifices. It's not just Ezekiel 40 through 48 that talks about a restoration of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, but it's indicated in uh, a number of other uh, Old Testament prophecies as well. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar So there's going to be an altar, there's going to be burnt offerings, and that's the first type of offering that's described in Leviticus chapter 1. That was the type of offering that uh, Abraham was supposed to give of of Isaac. It's a burnt offering. Everything that is put upon the altar is, uh, once it is killed, everything is burnt up, indicating complete and total uh, devotion and dedication to God. So Isaiah 56, 6, and 7 indicates the function of this temple will also include uh, burnt offerings and sacrifices. Haggai, another book you've probably read way too much over the course of your spiritual life. Some of you probably wonder, wait a minute, I think I saw that in the table of contents one time. God says, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, which is another title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord God. So that's talking about the millennial temple. The glory of this latter temple, verse uh, Haggai 2.9, reads, The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, and in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So it's clear that there's going to be this future uh, future temple. So we look forward to that future temple, and that future temple will include a unique priesthood. So the next thing we want to do is just understand the significance of this future temple. Uh, priesthood, because the Bible talks about that this is going to be a Zadokite priesthood. Now, a lot of people don't understand w- what's so great about this uh, Zadokite priesthood. Who is Zadok? Uh, it's not the jewelry store that you find out in the Galleria area. Uh, this is probably related to the same family, okay? They are descendants. That That, that family name probably indicates that they are in the line of Zadok, and they're probably in the line of Levitical, of Levitical priests. Uh, Hebrew or Jewish names like Cohen, or Cowan or Levi. Uh, these are all uh, family names that would indicate a heritage within the tribe, uh, the tribe of Levi. So let's uh, let's just understand how this fits together in terms of God's plan for the Aaronic priesthood. Now, Aaron is the older brother of Moses who went with Moses when he was, uh, went, went to challenge the Pharaoh. I don't know if that's they have Aaron anywhere in the uh, new uh, Exodus Gods and Kings movie. Anybody seen that yet? Nobody seen that yet? What? Well, you haven't seen it yet, so how do you know? <laughs> well, that you, you always believe what you read? No, I want somebody who's an eyewitness, not somebody who's a secondary witness. That doesn't carry any weight. I want somebody who's actually seen it. No, we've got to go with eyewitness reports. Um, okay, Exodus 40, Aaron's priesthood is established, and in Exodus chapter 40 we have his consecration and his anointing. Exodus forty thirteen, you shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him, and consecrate him; that means to set him apart, that he may minister to me as a priest. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them. So his sons, Eleazar and other sons like Itamar, are going to be brought uh, and clothed as well. And Korah, uh, you shall anoint them, and you sh- and, and as you anointed their father, that they may minister to me as priests. For their anointing shall surely last. For how long? to be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So there's this indication in Exodus 40 that this is an everlasting priesthood. Now, in other places, when we talk about the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the land covenant being everlasting covenants, that we always interpret that as something that's going to go on for, for eternity. And so here we see that that there's a promise being made to Aaron that his descendants will be an everlasting priesthood. So we have to investigate that a little bit. And I know I told you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel, and you can hold your place there. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, and we've gone through an extensive study of, of covenants in the Old Testament. And those covenants began with the creation or Edenic covenant. The next covenant is what? The Adamic covenant, Genesis 3. The next covenant is the Noahic covenant in Genesis 9. The next covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis chapters 15 and 17, primarily indicated or foreshadowed in Genesis 12. And that promises three things, land, seed, and blessing. The land uh, is expanded on in the land covenant, Deuteronomy 29 and 30. The Davidic covenants in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the new covenant is in Jeremiah 33, 31 to 33. that's Those are the covenants. Well, guess what? There's another eternal covenants mentioned in the Bible, one that I, I don't think I've ever taught on this, so we're going to spend a little time looking at this. So we're in Numbers chapter 25. Now, Numbers chapter 25 is one of those bizarre little episodes that occur in the Old Testament that just drive liberals crazy to point out what a terrible God we have and all these other things. Because they don't understand the significance of, of being set apart to God and the role of Israel as a priest nation in the Old Testament. So, what happens is that this is after the, the situation with uh, Balak. And Balak, of course, is the, or Balaam rather, Balaam is the prophet that Balak uh, tried to bribe to curse Israel. And there were the three different visions uh, related to our oracles of, of, of Balaam. And finally, he just couldn't curse Israel because God wouldn't wouldn't let him. So he came up with a scheme that would bring about the destruction uh, of the Jews. And that scheme was to get them involved in sexual sin that was a compromise of their religious beliefs and that this would then uh, destroy the purity of Israel and they could eventually be, be wiped out. So he, came, he told uh, Balak what he had in mind, and this is what comes, uh, what's described in Numbers 25. So when we look at Numbers 25, and what we see is that uh, this takes place in a location identified in verse 1 as Acacia Grove, which is just below Mount Nebo. For those of you who went to Israel recently, when we stood on Mount Nebo, we were looking down as you look to the Uh, Look to the north, uh, probably about uh, eight or ten miles. That would be the location of where the Jews crossed over, where the Israelites crossed over the River Jordan. This is near that location. And at this point, uh, the, the Moabites had trotted out all of their women to entice and seduce the Israelite men in sexual immorality. But it wasn't just about sex. It was about religion because the prominent cult at that time was what we refer to as the fertility cult. And so it's, and it's manifested in the worship of Baal and there are different Baals related to different cities and the worship of the, uh, of the Asherah. So all this is involved in these various uh, fertility, uh, fertility religions. And so they were enticed by the women of Moab to, uh, these fertil- sexual fertility rituals, which indicates that it wasn't just about sex, it was about completely abandoning Yahweh in favor of Baal of Paor. And so we read in, in verse 2, they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So it's not just, the, the, just it was a huge sexual orgy. And Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Now, one of the ways this is manifested, we infer from a few verses later, is that God brought a plague upon them, and 24,000 are killed during that that plague. So this is a, a, a religious act where they have committed treason against the god of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob who rescued them from slavery in Egypt and they are now giving their devotion to the god of uh, uh, to the fertility god Baal and this is part of this ancient practice of uh, worshipping god for fertility for productivity and it's the uh, ancient version of the modern prosperity gospel Heresy. God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And so this this is just the ancient version of that heresy. Now, for those who were involved in this, in verse four, God demanded that all of the leaders of the people were to be hanged. Um, the leaders, or rather, the leaders of the people were to hang all of the offenders before the Lord out in the sun. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So what happens is this is like a cancer, and God says you've got to go in and do radical surgery and completely amputate these people from the body of the congregation, uh, the body of the congregation of Israel. And so that's what, what they did. And as we read through this, Uh, verse 5, Moses says to the judges of Israel, every one of you, kill his men who were joined to Baal of Paor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel... So while he's instructing this, there's this probably drunk Israelite with his uh, Midianite uh, religious prostitute, and he starts pulling her out in front of the congregation and showing her off to everybody and bragging about it. And immediately... Uh, Phinehas, or in Hebrew, it's Pinchas. Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, rose from among the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And very graphically, he goes into the tent where this man is copulating with this uh, religious prostitute, and he drives the spear through both of them, just skewers them in one swoop and uh, executes them both. And the conclusion is, at the end of verse 8, so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. So because Pinchas understood his role as a priest to to execute the sinners and to bring ju- God's judgment upon the people, God rewards him with an everlasting covenant, in Numbers 25, verse 12, this is the only other eternal covenant I'm aware of in the scripture, and I've never taught it before. Numbers 25, 12, we read, therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. The, him, the I who is speaking is God, Yahweh, and the one he is speaking about is Pinchas, I shall uh, I will give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. Now, what did he do? There's that word Kafar, which we'll look at again in just a minute. It means to bring cleansing to people, not this idea of paying the price for sin, but cleansing, this is the, one of the important words for understanding this whole debate, is that for uh, a long time we have misunderstood the significance of the Hebrew word kafar. And often it's been uh, translated as to cover. There's actually two words. They are homonyms or homophones. And one word does mean to cover. That's used in Genesis chapter 6 when Noah covered the ark with pitch. But this word doesn't mean cover. And, and I'll, I'll show you why in just a little bit. It has the idea of cleansing or purification. And so he has cleansed the people from their sin because of the way he ha- he fulfilled the command of God. Now what's significant about this is that Aaron had several sons. The two that this chart focuses on are Eliezer and Itamar. Uh, Itamar is... serves as high priest, and his line goes down through Eli. Eli, we're going to go over this again when we get into our study on 1 Samuel, but Eli is the high priest at the time of Samuel, the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. And Eli has two extremely rebellious uh, apostate sons, Hapni and Pinchas. And he is... um, it is at that time that he's a high priest that he is going to, uh, that, that the Israelites are going to lose in battle, uh, lose the ark in battle to the Philistines. And this is why his, uh, Penhas' wife gives birth. And because the ark is taken, that child is called Ichavod, Ichavod, uh, no glory. And that line going from Itamar down through uh, Eli. And down through goes down through uh, Ahimelech and Abiathar. To uh, and Abiathar is removed from the priesthood at the time when Solomon ascends to the throne. And on the other side, as a descent from Eleazar through Pinchas the first, the covenant that I just spoke about, at the time that um, see Abiathar had. Uh, also violated David's trust. And so that's why Solomon removes him from the high priesthood. Abiathar had uh, 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 disobeyed uh, David and had gone with Absalom. And so the high priesthood is given to Zadok. And Zadok is in the direct line of of, uh, Eleazar. And so it's the descendants of Zadok, the Zadokites, that are the ones who are represent the purity of the priesthood. And Zadokite priests dominated the high priesthood through until 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed. And then when the Israel, Israelites returned from the uh, captivity in 538, uh, they, the new high priest was still a Zadokite until you get to the time of the Hasmoneans. And after the Maccabean Revolt, With the uh, rise of the Hasmonean rulers, they would appoint high priests on the basis of their political agenda, and they were no longer concerned about their purity or their uh, Zadokite descent. And so that is that gives you this background. So uh, there will be a restoration of that Zadokite priesthood in the millennial kingdom, emphasizing the purity of that future. Of that future priesthood. Now, Ezekiel clearly states that the restored priesthood in the future is going to be that of the Zadokite priesthood. In Ezekiel 40 46 and 44 15, we're told that uh, in 40 46, the chamber which faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok from the sons of Levi. This is a fulfillment of that everlasting covenant. With uh, with Pinchas. and in Ezekiel forty four fifteen uh, they are the ones that shall stand before me. The verse begins, but the priests of Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand where before me to offer me the fat and the blood. This is talking about the millennial kingdom. So there's definitely going to be the animal sacrifices again affirmed by the role of the priesthood. So what we see as we go into our study, we see a restoration of the Levitical priesthood, but there are these various prophecies related to a millennial temple as well as prophecies of future sacrifices. So outside of Ezekiel, so this doesn't stand or fall with Ezekiel 40 to 48. There's references to a restoration of the temple and a restoration of animal sacrifices in other places. Uh, the the four passages I have up here in terms of prophecies of a of a restored millennial temple are Joel three eighteen, Isaiah two three, Isaiah sixty verse thirteen, and Haggai two seven and nine. Uh, so they all and in, in some of those we've looked at already. Some of them we haven't. And then there are prophecies of future sacrifices in Isaiah fifty six six and seven, Isaiah sixty verse seven. Jeremiah 33:17 17 and 18 is a crucial central passage. And Zechariah 14, 16 to 21. Now, what we, what we should understand as we talk about this is the central role that sacrifices plays within what I'll call, for lack of a better term right now, biblical Judaism, as opposed to rabbinical Judaism or post-Second Temple Judaism, Okay. In biblical Judaism, sacrifices were integral to the Mosaic Law. Some of you know this. How many? Give you a little pop quiz. How many commandments are there in the Mosaic Law? 613. 613 commandments. What portion, what percentage of those laws relate to the temple service and sacrifices? A third of them a third of them, 30%, so roughly 200 of those 613 commandments are related to temple service and, uh, and sacrifice. So here's the question, pay attention. So if you're Jewish and you can't get forgiveness of sin unless there's a sacrifice and the temple is destroyed, how are you going to feel about that when you can't, take a sacrifice to the temple anymore a couple of jewish writers wrote the following how can we possibly sense the terror that must have gripped a person who had to atone for his sins but was unable to do so now they're not believers they don't they're not accepting that jesus died on the cross for their sins but within their framework of thinking because they still have to atone for their sins there's no forgiveness anywhere else. That's why last week when I was talking on sacrifice on Thursday night and I talked about the film that Joel Kramer did on the sacrifice. This is what's so so revealing in that is that he goes to the Samaritan community up on Mount Gerizim. And every year on Passover, they still sacrifice lambs, one for every family. There's about 700 of them. So they sacrifice right now about 54 uh, 54 lambs, and and they kill them all simultaneously. And then what happens? It's so weird to us. They immediately erupt into shouts of joy, and they dance around, and they rub the blood on their foreheads. Now, the purpose of that film is not to say this is something that's good or legitimate or we can practice it, but it gives us a window into the kind of thinking that characterized a pre-Christian era Jew. They understood that when that, that lamb is sacrificed at Passover, it reminds them that they were given freedom from slavery in Egypt. That's like the 4th of July. When that lamb is slaughtered, they are reminded. Now they are free and free from slavery. When the sacrifices are slaughtered, in Yom Kippur, they have forgiveness of sin for another year. We've lost sight of that dimension, and so that's one of the reasons I think that film is is significant because it re- puts us in touch with something that we're not so mindful of. How many people, when they think, of, when they get saved, are really excited? I think a lot of Christians are. But it's not long before that excitement sort of wears off. And so what, what these guys are pointing out is the fact that, that if you can't atone for your sins and you have a biblical understanding of sin as something that separates you from God, what are you going to do? And this is one of the problems that you've got with Judaism post Second Temple Judaism, is there's no temple, there's no sacrifice, there's no way to get forgiveness of sin. That's why you get a there, there are these movements right now of of some of the more orthodox uh, Jews that want to have the privilege to have sacrifices on the Temple Mount. Uh, about two weeks before we went to Israel this last last November, about mid-October, a rabbi by the name of Yehuda Glick, who is known as a, he's a, from what I've read about him, he's a very gentle, quiet, soft-spoken guy, but he's very firm in his conviction that Jews need to be able to offer sacrifices on the Temple Mount. And he was uh, leaving a synagogue service, I believe, one night, and a, a, a Palestinian pulled up. And called his name, and he turned around, and the guy and he was shot uh, several times, and he managed to survive his wounds, but he 's also interestingly enough pictured in that film the sacrifice that Joel Kramer made. he had heard that there were some Jews who were going to sacrifice a lamb, and that he managed to find out where they were going to do it, and got permission and went there to see it and Yehuda Glick was. Uh, a rabbi who was involved with that. But these two Jewish writers uh, bring this point out, and they say, How can we possibly sense the terror that must have gripped a person who had to atone for his sins but was unable to do so? The Jew who lived at the time of the temple's destruction did not have other methods of atonement developed by generations of halakhic legislation. That's rabbinic laws, or oral laws developed over the years. That generation of Jews had to grapple with a new reality which appeared to deny any possibility of religious wholeness. An individual who sinned would have to continue to live with his sin. This factor contributed to the doubts which assailed many Jews of this period as to whether there was any point or indeed any possibility of maintaining a religious way of life. As far as they were concerned, there's, there's no way to have your sins atoned for, no way to be be purified. So the point is sacrifice is inherent in the age of Israel. Now, the age of Israel ended prematurely with the death of the Messiah. Daniel nine twenty four to 27 talks about the, the, the time period of the 490 years for Israel. We've studied that many times. The last seven years are cut off. And that is restored at the end in the latter days. That refers to the seven years of the tribulation period. But the millennial kingdom then comes in. And how does the millennial kingdom fit? The millennial kingdom has a Davidic king ruling from Jerusalem with a king, with a restored Levitical priesthood and a restored temple. Is this like the church age? No. One of the distinctives that that we see here is in the church age, Gentiles become one with Jews in the body of Christ. Jew and Gentiles are united, and that distinction is no longer spiritually significant in the church age. But is that the case in the Millennial Kingdom? In the millennial kingdom, there's a role and a place for Gentiles, but the Gentiles are included within the kingdom. They do not become united with the Jews in one new body. They're included within. So so we go back to a period in the millennial kingdom that's more of an extension of the age of Israel than one that's related to to the church age. So you have a temple, and so you have this restoration of sacrifice. Now, here's a slide I, I developed some more from the other night on sacrifice, and what, is this, what does this word mean? It develops from the Latin word. The English word sacrifice comes from the Latin word sacer, which means holy, and holy means to be set apart for something. So sacer means holy, and faceri or faceri means to make. So sacrifice means what? It means to make something holy or to make it set apart to God. That's the meaning. The Hebrew word is hechdesh, kadash, the K-D-S-H. That's the root, kadosh, or kadash is the word in Hebrew to make holy. Uh, so that that um, uh, hechdesh is a form of that word which means to make something holy or to set it apart to the service of God. And so it's the the act of killing an animal uh, as an offering to God. That's the English concept. And the second meaning is an act of giving up something of value for the sake of something that's of greater value. Now, that's the basic idea of sacrifice. The biblical sense is to make something holy. And there are two things that are emphasized in in sacrifice. Uh, Number one is the idea of substitution, Something is killed instead of the person who is offering the sacrifice. So instead of me having to die, something dies in my place. So substitution is there. The second idea is purification. Purification. Now, in the Old Testament, the the translators, English translators, didn't really know how to translate that word kafar. So they translated it with the word atonement. Atonement was a made-up English word. It was coined to translate that word. You can look till you're dead, and you will never find the word atonement in the New Testament. It is an Old Testament concept, uh, but the English word really didn't capture it. it they, they coined this word at one met, and it had more uh, theological concept of reconciliation. Theologically, it came to refer to the whole work of Christ on the cross, but it and they related it to the meaning of kafar as as covering. But they missed the boat on that. Numerous studies have come out in, in the last number of years indicating that, that kafar doesn't mean to cover. It means to purify or to cleanse. And I'll show you some verses on that in a minute. But as we look at sacrifice in the future temple... All but one chapter of the nine chapters in Ezekiel that deal with the future temple, all but one chapter, chapter 47, mentions the sacrificial system. So this isn't something that is just sort of a, a secondary or tertiary feature within those chapters. It is, it is central to understanding the function of the temple. New moon, Sabbaths, and the appointed feasts are mentioned in Ezekiel 44, 24, 45, 17, 46, 3, and 11 to 12 daily offerings are mentioned in ezekiel forty six thirteen to fourteen burnt offerings grain offerings, and libations those are drink offerings are, are mentioned in ezekiel 45, 17, 46, 2, 3, and eleven through fifteen blood sacrifices are mentioned in ezekiel forty three twenty Uh, An altar for the burnt offerings is mentioned in Ezekiel 40, 47, and 43, 13 to 27. There are many other things that related to the sacrificial system that are mentioned, but that gets you the main idea. This is a central feature in these nine chapters uh, of of, um, Ezekiel. Now, one of the key verses that indicates this outside of Ezekiel is Jeremiah 33, 17 to 18. There we read, for thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. What covenant is that? Davidic. Davidic. That's the Davidic covenant. Nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man. Now, not only will there be a Davidic king on the throne, but the next verse indicates that, that the priesthood is going to be uh, activated during his reign, the priests, the Levites, nor will the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. Now that's a pretty strong statement that there's going to be a restoration of a sacrificial system with burnt offerings, grain offerings, at least, in the millennial kingdom. In Ezekiel 43:20 20 to 26, uh, the God is instructed. God instructs in relation to these future sacrifices. You shall take some of the blood, and from the sacrifice, and put it on the four horns of the altar, on the four corners of the ledge, and on the rim around it. Thus, you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. Now, the word "cleanse" there is used in parallelism with making atonement. This is one of the reasons we understand that that. Atonement has to do with cleansing and purification it 's ritual cleansing and purification as opposed to real cleansing and purification. When God dwells in a sinful world where there are sinful people, then there has to be a ritual purification and cleansing of the temple, not only the people but also the utensils in the in the temple in verse twenty six seven days they shall make atonement that 's the word. Uh, kafar, which means also to purify, cleanse, or to make atonement. That's how it's translated for the altar and purify, and so set it apart. Now, you, you see these this this reference to different uh, different sacrifices that are made in the millennial kingdom. In Ezekiel 45:15, we read, "One lamb shall be given from a flock of two hundred from the rich pastures of Israel. These shall be for grain offerings." For burnt offerings, for peace offerings, to make atonement for them. And then in verse 17, then it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and at all the appointed seasons of the house of Israel. So there's clearly a restoration of something that is similar to the Levitical ritual calendar and ritual sacrifices. And he shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offerings, the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make atonement for the house of Israel. Now, notice that language, because one of the things that you are probably taught and I was taught and I heard and was very common and is a a fairly workable solution for this problem was the idea that these sacrifices were going to be literal, but they were memorial sacrifices similar to the Lord's table. The problem with that view is that the language doesn't reflect that. You don't have memorial language. When we celebrate the Lord's table, what did Jesus say? He said, do this in remembrance of me. You don't have that terminology anywhere in Ezekiel 40 to 48. You don't have memorial or remembrance terminology at all. But the language that is used, the instructions that are given, are are syntactically the same as what you have in Leviticus, they, in terms of vocabulary they 're the same as you have in Leviticus. Look at how we read this that these in ezekiel forty five fifteen these are given these offerings are to make atonement for them when we come down to forty five seventeen These offerings are to make atonement for the house of Israel. Look at what Leviticus 1.4 says in describing the burnt offering, the Olah offering. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. It's the same language. It's not, you can't, you can't allegorize this or spiritualize it in some way to make it fit a memorial sense of, of the purpose of these sacrifices. Now, here's a, here's an important verse in Ezekiel 43, uh, 20 and 26, which I was just talking about a minute ago. The, the word, you shall cleanse it and make atonement for it. The first word, cleanse it, is this word, hatah. This is the same word that translated means sin. So it means to miss or miss the mark or miss the way sin incur guilt. But it also is used in ritual passages to indicate purification from uncleanness and that comes from the theological word book of the Old Testament then that is used in a synonymous parallelism with atonement here to cleanse it and aton- and make atonement for it that's the word kafar and then in verse 26 they shall make atonement for the altar and purify it that's the word taher which also has that idea of purification now this word taher as well as the word Kafar are translated into the Greek Septuagint by guess what word? You've heard some of this so much, even though you don't know Greek, you ought to know this. Katharizo, where we get the translation if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So atonement isn't talking about a a phase one payment for sin, sacrifice, it's talking about phase two spiritual life, ongoing cleansing, ritual cleansing for the ritual worship of God in the temple or the tabernacle. Now, as I pointed out last, last Thursday night, the, one of the primary words for sacrifice in the, uh, in the Hebrew is the word korban, which means to draw near. What does sin do? Sin separates us from God. We're spiritually dead. We're separated from God. What does a sacrifice do? It's called a korban. Often it's translated offering. It is designed to bring us near to God. So the only way to restore that broken fellowship with God because of sin is through an offering or through sacrifice. So that brings us back together. So that's a great picture. Now we look at the other night, we looked at the different sacrifices that we have in Leviticus, uh, the burnt offering, the grain offering, Thanksgiving offering, the peace offering, guilt offering, trespass offering. So what do we have in Ezekiel? In Ezekiel, it talks about the Olah, the burnt offering, that whole offering to God. This is uh, this is listed in Ezekiel, that should be 42, 38 to 39, uh, and 42, 43, 18 to 24, and 27, Ezekiel 44:11, 45:15, 17, 23, 25, 46, 12 to 13 and 15. You don't need to copy, write all that down. It's impressive how many times in these chapters does it talks about, does it talk about, or prescribe or describe a burnt offering. Ezekiel 45:17, he shall prepare the sin offering, the grain offering, and the burnt offering to make atonement. Same language that we have in Leviticus. Then we had the sin offering called the korban hatat, from hatah for sin. That's mentioned in Ezekiel 40, 39, 42, 13, 42, 19, 21 to 22, and 25, 44, 27, and 29, 45, 17, and 19, and 22 to 23. Wow. All through here, this this doesn't fit the idea that there's no sacrifice in the millennial kingdom. Then you have the guilt offering called the korban asham, mentioned in Ezekiel 40:39, 42:13, 44:29, and 46:20. Again, and you have all the sacrifices, almost all the sacrifices from Leviticus mentioned again. You have the grain offering, the korban mincha. It mentioned in ezekiel forty two thirteen forty four twenty nine forty five fifteen seventeen and twenty four and then the peace offering uh, the korban Shalamim in ezekiel forty three twenty seven forty five fifteen seventeen forty six two and twelve now i 'm running through those verses a lot because you don 't need to really look at them you can look it up in, in a concordance and find those if you 're interested i I want you to to Recognize how many times these different sacrifices and offerings are mentioned, but in Ezekiel forty to forty-eight, this isn't something that's just an, a, a minor idea mentioned in the in this text. It's a central to the whole understanding of that future temple. These passages I've mentioned some of these already uh, list all the a lot of them are the same passages that just list these various. Uh, offerings and and sacrifices and they're all designed to make atonement. As I've thought about this, why why are we doing this? Well, for one thing, we have a restoration to ritual when God dwells among sinful people in a sinful world, there has to be cleansing cleansing from sin ritually. Ritually, there's a difference between ritual and real. A person is saved by trusting in Jesus as the Messiah and his completed payment on the cross. That's true in the millennial kingdom as it's true now. But we're going to have a physical temple with a physical Shekinah dwelling of God in the temple in the millennial kingdom. And so there has to be uh, cleansing, ritual cleansing, because the priests who serve in the temple are going to sin, and they are going to need to have ritual cleansing for serving in, in the temple. But there's a, I think there's another reason. And that is that, uh, as I pointed out the other night when we were talking about sacrifice, that we've become pretty distant in the church age from the reality of, of animal death and what happens in an animal sacrifice. And some of you are here, you've got a background in hunting or you grew up on a farm. And you're, the idea of an animal dying is not foreign to you. Some of you have never seen an animal die, and it would be a real shock to your system to watch an animal sacrifice, which was a daily thing in the Old Testament, and a realization that every time you sinned, there were consequences, and you had to sacrifice an animal because of your selfish nature. And that's a real learning point. Today we've gotten so distanced from it that most people go to the grocery store and they buy chickens and they buy roasts and they buy hamburgers and they never think about where the meat came from and what was involved in getting it from the farm uh, into their hamburger or onto, onto their grill. But think about what it's going to be in the millennial kingdom. How many things are going to be dying in the millennial kingdom? Not very many. So when the Bible talks about death, and remember, physical death isn't the consequence of sin. I mean, it's a consequence of sin, but it's not the penalty for sin. Spiritual death was a penalty of sin. Physical death was a consequence, but physical death is used again and again in the Old Testament as a training aid, as a visual aid to teach about the horrors of spiritual death. But if you're living in the millennial kingdom in perfect environment, and you're, you're, you hear the word death, how are you going to relate to that? I mean, the church age—it's bad enough. Nobody sees their parents or grandparents die hardly anymore. Uh, used to be, everybody was born in the house and died in the house, and everybody was was fairly uh, familiar with death—animal death or human death—but not anymore. But in the millennial kingdom, it's going to be much, much worse. Nobody—the word death is almost going to have no meaning for most people. So you go to the millennial temple and you have to bring a sacrifice, it is a training aid to understand the penalty and consequences of sin that it brings death. And so this then becomes a training tool to communicate the gospel and the need for faith in Jesus Christ as your Messiah in order to have eternal life. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to... I teach through this material and to study it and come to an understanding of your plan and purposes, the history that culminate in this this almost, almost perfect dispensation, and that even at that time there's going to be a need to emphasize the, the penalty for sin, the reality of sin, and the need for a substitute so that people will recognize that they have to trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Help us to assimilate these doctrines and relate them to our own spiritual life.